Well, Douglas is right. Um, Jesus isn't the king who will do things our way. Um, and as we read our Bibles, we find out that Jesus wasn't the king that was going to do things their way either. Um, Jesus is the king who's going to do things his way, the, the right way. Um, the implication being, much like today, that lots of people are claiming to speak for God. I, I'm sure you guys have noticed this. Politicians, I mean, you name it, everybody seems to want to speak for God. God's okay with this. God's not okay with that. God likes this. God definitely doesn't like that. I mean, we have a lot of voices out there. And which way exactly is his way with all these voices? Um, so we're going to jump in right today. Um, here's what the crowds of Jesus' day thought about Jesus, right? Um, this is in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, right? We, we've been singing Hosanna, and the, the kids were up here with the palm leaves. Well, what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means save us, save us now, right? This was a cry of help for people that um, in, in that day when the king or when their God, they, they cried out for help. It was Hosanna, save us now, save us now. Um, and then uh, continuing in verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to son of David, the son of David. This was the most common title for the Messiah, son of David. Um, and behind it was this prophetic expectation that one day a great prince of the line of David would arrive, right, and bring healing on his wings. So he would arrive and he would bring healing on his wings. But there were still at least three unanswered questions that the people had. The first two were, how would this healing arrive in this new kingdom? right? Between the two testaments, there was a lot of what was called apocalyptic literature, and people began to look at their world, and, and they lost their temple, they lost their land, they lost nearly everything, and they began to wonder, does God even like us anymore? Does he even remember us? And, and, and they kind of arrived at a point where um, things are so bad, if, thing, if anything is going to get better, God's going to have to come crushing in. He's going to have to bring this, this mighty army with him, and it's just going to be this, this apocalyptic, this crazy, crazy cataclysm of an event. And that, that's kind of what they were thinking this is the only way this was going to happen. So how would the healing arrive in this new kingdom? And the second question is, what would the healing look like in this kingdom? And these were important questions. Right, because they also kind of drove at who would be in and who would be out in this new kingdom, right? Who would be accepted or not, and who would be healed or not. And so they are all very excited that the Messiah had finally arrived, because if the Messiah arrived, that they would have all of their questions answered, right? The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? That's a, that's a critical phrase right there. To come in the name of the Lord is to come by the authority of God, right? To come commissioned by God to reveal his will. The Jews had this idea and they applied it to the Messiah that he would one day come and answer all their questions, right? All, all the questions of the, of the day would be, be answered, um, and here's the most common answer to the, the how and the what. How would the kingdom arrive and, and what would it be like? What would healing look like? Uh, the Messiah was most commonly thought of in nationalistic, political, and military terms of power and glory, right? You've all heard this many, many, many times, right? So how would healing arrive? It would arrive by military power. God would bring this great prince from the line of David, and there'd be a big old army behind him, and they'd, right? So that's how power would arrive. And what would healing look like? Healing would look like Israel being healed of the corrupting power of both Rome and King Herod, 
That's what healing would look like. Again, we think of healing as our bodily healing, diseases, things like that. Or maybe even if we listen to Douglas, we think about healing from sin. But really what was on the minds of the Israelites was healing of their nation, right? They wanted to be healed of Rome. Rome was this external threat, this external problem that was kind of messing up their society. They also had an internal threat, right? King Herod and his weird family dynamics, right? This was an internal threat. So in their eyes, healing, they would be healed of Rome and King Herod. That, that, that's kind of what was in their mind. So, so healing would ride by power, and, and the healing would look like getting rid of Rome and King Herod. Now, again, if Douglas is right, and I think he's right, they were wrong on both counts, right? They were wrong on both counts. First of all, according to Douglas and the prophet Zechariah, so we're going to give Douglas a little, little background, back up here. Healing wouldn't arrive by might or by power, right? Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, right? So power, right? The, the healing wasn't going to arrive by power. It was going to arrive by the spirit of God. Nor would healing look like power or military might. Healing's going to look like a Roman cross, Right? Healing was going to be sacrificial love, not power and might and armies and violence. That's, according to God, that's not what was going to bring healing. In fact, that's what brought pain more than anything else. That was the, the world's power, the way the world operated. Again, which leads us to the third question or issue on everybody's mind as Jesus rode into Jerusalem with all the answers. Right? Who gets healed in this kingdom? Now remember, who would be in, who would be out in this new kingdom? Those were the questions on the mind. Who would be accepted or not? And who would be healed or not? And the prevailing wisdom of the day claimed that strict observance of the law, Torah, right? That is the way that you would be properly prepared for God's coming kingdom and for Israel's restoration to glory, right? Study the Torah, know the Torah, observe the Torah, obey Torah. Now, that's easier said than done. Right? In addition to the written Torah, which you're looking at right up there, that's, well, you actually have it in your hands too, the first five books of your Old Testament, that was Torah, right? the Pentateuch. Um, in addition to the written Torah, which is the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, um, there were also the oral tradition. Right? This was called the Mishnah. Right? This is where you, you've heard, I know you've heard this 613 some odd laws that you, you also had to, fool it, it, to, to follow in, in addition to the Ten Commandments, right? These additional, right? you thought Ten was di- difficult, 613 additional commandments were contained in what was called the Mishnah. They believed that this was handed down by Moses. This was orally handed down, not written down. Right? The, the Pentateuch was written down, but this oral tradition, I don't know if Moses' hand got tired, I don't know what the deal was, or he said, God, like, I'll, I'll memorize the rest, I'm tired of writing. But he got the 10 written down, but then there were like 613 more, right? And they believed that it was handed down by Moses, passed on by the elders through the centuries until they were all written down, actually about two or 300 years after Jesus. So at the time of Jesus, nothing was written down, this oral tradition, it was all memorized, And it was a lot. I mean, we think the five books is a lot. The Mishnah was like 10 times that. It was commentary. It was was basically the idea of the Mishnah was to build a fence around the Torah. You didn't want to violate those big 10, the biggies, right? So So these 613 were like all these surrounding the Torah. In order to get to the Torah and violate it, you had to violate all these other ones. So they were deliberately making it difficult for you to violate Torah. 
You'd, I mean, you had to break about 20 different rules, 30, 40, 50 different rules even to get to the, to the biggies. Right? So that was the idea behind all this. The whole idea, again, was to maintain a complex system of purity marked by holy separation that would make it possible for a holy God to dwell with a holy people. And so, fence around the Torah, right? God is holy, we're unholy. There's got to be a separation. And for us to be in his presence, we've got to be holy. We've got to have followed all of these we're going to get to that right now. So, fence around the Torah. Bible scholars refer to this stratified purity system, and I, and I re- go ahead and hit that next slide there. Um, this is from Al Truesdale's book. It just came out um, titled Sin. Um, it's a part of the Wesleyan Theological Series. It's, I encourage you, get on the Foundry website, our publishing company, and get a hold of these books. There's about seven of them that have been printed so far, and there'll be six or seven more. Um, Al Truesdale was at one point president of our Nazarene Theological Seminary. I think he's a professor emeritus there at this point. Um, And so he talks about this idea of purity maps and boundary rules. And in the the Israel system, um, they determined the religious and social status of everything. I mean, there's not a part of your life that was not touched by this oral tradition. The way you dress, the way you brush your teeth, the way you use the... I mean... Everything in your life, the oral tradition had something to say, right? And here was the, the, the point of it. If you properly observed and followed the purity maps and the boundary rules, they would provide holy ways. Remember Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life? Well, the, the Pharisees, they were providing the, these, these boundary maps and their, these purity maps and boundary rules would provide a, a pathway that if you walk this path very, very carefully and you didn't stray out of bounds, you were holy, you remained clean, and you could therefore be in the presence of a holy God, right? So it, 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 these 613 rules, they ordered every step of your life so that you wouldn't be unclean. Not that you would be sinful and unsinful, but that you would clean and unclean. Again, we don't don't want to be confused here. We're not talking about really sin, like we've hurt somebody. In the Israelite system, there was this idea of being clean and unclean. We're going to get to that just a little bit here. So again, boundary rules would assure purity and holiness. The maps and the rules clearly established what was righteous, what was less righteous, and what was unrighteous, right? In other words, who would be in, who would be out in this new kingdom, right? Who would be accepted or not, and who would be healed or not? The 613, this oral tradition kind of laid that out for everybody. One last thing. I've been referring to this a little bit. According to the maps and the rules, to be holy, I'm going to use words carefully because they little funny words here. To be holy, you had to be whole, right? W-H-O-L-E. If you were not whole, you weren't holy, right? And there are a lot of ways that you can be holy and less holy, right? Um, Your family, right? If you intermarry outside of the Jewish line, you're not clean anymore. You're unholy, right? If you marry down, don't marry down, marry up. If you marry down, you marry into uncleanness. You, you marry into un, unholy. A lot of different ways that you can be unclean. Again, family lineage, right? Uh, dietary laws is where we get all the dietary laws, kosher laws of the Jewish people. And occupations, right? You had to choose your occupation very carefully because some occupations were unclean. 
If you dealt with dead bodies in any way, you were unclean. You didn't get to participate in the community, in the religious services of your community because you're unclean. If you were a tanner, you dealt with dead animals. If you were a tax collector, I mean, there was a whole list of occupations that made you unclean, not sinful, but unclean, therefore unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God. Right? This, this, is the, this is their mindset, right? Now, at the bottom of this list of people separated from God and community, which is really one and the same, if you dig through, one of the big themes of the Bible is when we're in community, we have life, and when we're outside of community, we experience death, right? Life is in community, in the community of God, especially perichoresis, the the dance of the the triune God. Um, But at the bottom of this list of people separated from God and community were people with defective bodies, They weren't considered whole. Lepers, the blind, lame persons, menstruating women. If you were bleeding in any way, whether you were a man or a woman, you were unclean. Not sinful, but you were unclean, and you didn't. They could not conceive of God allowing you into his presence because you were not whole. You were defective. And only non-defective can be in the presence of a holy God. And then this is not to mention the vast majority of the villagers live with poor sanitation, protein deficiencies, rotting teeth, poor eyesight, right? So just uncleanliness throughout their life. Not to mention the fact that they're living right beside prostitutes, pig herders, dung collectors. I mean, you name it. Their entire, the, the entire life of the village people, your average village Joe, was just unclean. It was unholy. And the Pharisees right? They looked down on the people because they were unclean. That, that was kind of the, the politics of the day. Now, understand something about the system keepers, the Pharisees. You need to understand this. They weren't, they had pure hearts. Again, like a lot of people today, pure hearts, but they just kind of go about the business in, in a funny way that hurts people, right? They thought that God was so holy and demanding that he preferred only to keep company with religious achievers like themselves, Right? The Pharisees, they were correct in opposing careless opposition and indifference to God's law. Right? Sin was a big deal to the Pharisees, and it should be a big deal to us. But the Pharisees were incredibly rich in divine distance, separation, requirements, and judgment. But they were incredibly poor in love, grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Right? They just had a different idea of holiness. And again, we've talked about this just a little bit. We, that has a little bit of a hangover today. People who feel like holiness means that we need to separate from the world entirely. But that violates everything I read about Christ in the New Testament. We're to be in the world, not of the world. But we've got to be in the world in order to save the world. We can't separate from the world. So they were making that same mistake, being separated from the world. So in terms of our third question, who gets healed in this new kingdom? Well, the question becomes, who speaks for God, the Pharisees or Jesus? According to the Pharisees, you got to follow everything perfectly in order to get into God. But according to Jesus, a radically different interpretation of the same Scripture, exact same Scripture. Each of them heard God differently. So who speaks for God? Is it the purity map makers and the boundary rule makers? I mean, there's any number of Christian politicians and religious leaders will tell you exactly what God thinks about any number of issues. And they will tell you exactly who's in, who's out, who's going to get healed, and who's not going to heal, who deserves to get healed, and who doesn't deserve to get healed. Man, you just turn on the radio, turn on the TV, and, and it, it seems to be the speech of the day, what God thinks. And, and it, right, it's just all over the place. 
Long story short, Jesus goes in a completely different direction than the Pharisees. And many church leaders in the world today, as I, as I read and I hear them on TV and I hear them talk and I'm, I'm just appalled. This morning, I want to be certain that we listen to the voice of Jesus rather than the map and the boundary makers. And I want you to be aware of something. Um, in a nutshell, Jesus was a boundary breaker. And I know this makes a lot of people nervous. If you're an older brother, an older sister, you got that older son mentality, rule keeper. My wife's one of those people, right? We can be in the middle of the desert. And if it says no parking, I'll have to move the car six feet away. Because of that, nothing. I mean, she will not be able to park next to that sign in the middle of the desert. And the sign was accidentally put there. She, she won't do it. It just, she's, she's the older child. And that's just, maybe some of you are that. This will bother you. This message will bother you because this is a message about Jesus, the rule breaker, right? The, the purity map violator. This is what Jesus does. In a book, uh, Dr. Scott McKnight wrote a community called Atonement. I'm going to take a lot of what I'm about to say from his book. Um, he traces what he calls the Lucan thread of who Jesus considered worthy of the kingdom that he was ushering in. According to Dr. McKnight, that is really one of Luke's big tasks is to let the world know, the, not, not the world of power, but the world without power. Luke's whole task was to tell the world of the lame and the, the rejected and the, the not allowed in to the show. Um, his whole gospel was, no, you are. You are invited into the kingdom, right? The kingdom is for you. It's not for the rich. The kingdom is actually for you. If you're broken, if you're lame, if, if you're in any of those kind of categories, the kingdom is actually for you. And he brings us all out in this incredible book, a community called Atonement. Um, in Luke chapter 6, starts off, and this is part of his, his, the thread that he follows. Um, he starts off, Luke starts off with Jesus breaking the rules, right? Stepping outside the boundary maps in order to bless and include people thought to be at the margins of the purity maps or completely out of bounds altogether. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 6, verse 2. Verse 1 says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus goes on to explain to them that this particular boundary rule was actually stopping people from coming near to God, right? Their interpretation of this particular rule was actually leading to death and not life. And he, he, he would continue this. As you read through the Gospels, he would always have these confrontations with the Pharisees, and they would have this interpretation. He'd say, no, no, your interpretation is not leading to life. Your interpretation is leading to death. Rethink it. Rethink it. And Jesus continues to challenge the maps and the boundaries a few verses on. So he challenges them right there, right? And he tells them, here's why I'm doing it. And then chapter, or, or in chapter 6, verse 6, a little bit further on, he does it again. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on a Sabbath, because that's one of the things you weren't supposed to do, right? That wasn't in the Pentateuch. That was in the oral tradition. You couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. And you know what happens next, right? I don't even have to read it. He heals the man and makes the religious leaders mad. That's what Jesus did, right? He was allowing unclean and unholy people into God's presence. And this was absolutely, the Jews were just kind of losing their heads over this, 
right? Because that went against everything, everything in their culture, unclean, unholy, do not enter into the presence of God. And here Jesus was inviting the worst of the worst of them into the presence of God, pulling out their hair. I mean, they were, they were losing it. And then again, beginning in verse 17, Jesus turns their whole religious world upside down, right? It says that Jesus then went down to the disciples and stood on a, a level place and spoke to the crowds. This is, I'm going to continue into verse 17, Luke chapter 6. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So things were happening around Jesus, right? Things were happening around Jesus, so therefore people wanted to be around Jesus. If you were hurt and broken, you wanted to be around Jesus. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. Things were happening. And the people who all tried to touch him because power was coming from him, right? The, the him the wings of his, his robe. That, that was the idea of the prophecy from Isaiah. If you just touch the hem of his robe, there would be healing in his wings, and that was the, the trim on the edge of the robe, wings, right? Because power was coming from him and healing them all. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says something that many of you have heard, and many of you know best by way of Matthew's account. But I'm now going to read Luke's account of the Beatitudes. Again, a lot of you learn them in Matthew. They're all listed there beautifully. It's Sermon of the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. It's just surrounded by Jesus's, not instruction, but information. These are the people who will be in the kingdom, right? People who don't judge, people who love, you know, who love their enemies instead of hating them. You know, these are the kind of people that the kingdom is for. But something interesting comes to light in Luke's account in Luke's gospel that's easily missed in Matthew's account. So I'm going to read it. This is, I'll start in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. And, and again, I'm just asking if you notice anything, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've all read the Matthew account quite a few times. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Now, in Matthew's version, it sounds like the, sing, the, the citizens of God's kingdom are all going to be mourning all the time. They're all going to be weeping. They're all going to be poor in spirit, and they're all going to be meek, right? That's the impression I get, and I've heard really good preachers, and I, and, I, and I believe them. I believe they had a good interpretation, right? They'll, they'll try to make weeping and poor in spirit. They'll, they'll make it sound good, right? The poor in spirit, they'll make sound humble, and, and those, those interpretations are all good and fine, but I get a, a very strong impression, but that wasn't the intent of either of the evangelists. They weren't describing what the citizens of heaven would look like or would be, who, who would be the perfect citizens of heaven. What he was describing and telling, really, the, the broken people, you get to be a part of this kingdom, that was the point of everything, right? It wasn't as much to describe what the citizens of heaven would look like and be like as much as who this new kingdom would admit as citizens. That was the news for everybody because for most of the villagers and town people, they did not have access to any of the stuff that Israel was great about, right? They were just the poor people, and, and it didn't really matter who was king to them. They just went about their daily lives, right? Right? The passage continues. 
Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you. Your name is evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. In other words, rejoice in that day because you'll be counted as one of my prophets who was treated just as badly. But that's not all Jesus had to say. Listen to this. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, for that is how your ancestors treated the false prophets. Basically, look at how the false prophets were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true, not popular. Again, in chapter 14, the exact same pattern, same message, but with a clear message for the church at the end. One Sabbath, when Jesus went out to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, so you know who all's there, right? All the people who are in are there, and the people who are out are not there. It's not a party for them. It's the house of a prominent Pharisee. So he was being carefully watched there, and there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body, right? And you know what's going to happen next, right? Boundary breaker. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. That's just what Jesus did. I mean, he, again, you can look through the rest of the Gospels, and, and at one point he's, he's challenging the dietary laws, right, declaring all food clean. And at another point he's, 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 he's hugging lepers, right, and, and, and touching people with skin diseases, right? Jesus was trying to get them to see that holiness is, is an internal thing of the heart, right? It has nothing to do with external body surfaces and, and orifices. That has nothing to do with it. It's about the heart. And then after a short but really humiliating lesson on the importance of being humble, Jesus drives home his point. This is verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbor. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. Now, he's not saying don't do this, but in comparison. He's, he's just drawing a comparison. Don't just do that. You should also be doing this. But when you give a banquet, invite who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, you've got to understand, if you're a Jew sitting in that party and Jesus said this, you disagree, right? In your mind, these people, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, do not enter into the presence of God. Absolutely not. And then Jesus is saying, hey, invite these unclean people into your home. Now, there was one guy at the party, and I'm, he's, as I read this, I'm just like, this is a diplomat. This is a diplomat because he basically insults Jesus. He, he says the exact opposite, like, uh, Jesus, I can't believe you said that. So I'm just going to go ahead and say what you should have said. When one of those at the table of him heard him say this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, you know in his mind, there's only going to be only Jews there. There's going to be no one poor. There will be nobody crippled. There will be nobody lame. There will be nobody blind at this banquet. And this is what the man basically says to Jesus, blessed are the clean and the holy, us, who are going to make it to this great banquet that you're talking about. <laughs> now, again, for the average Orthodox Jew, never have dreamed that Gentiles and sinners and unclean, unholy people could ever find a place at the banqueting table of God. Impossibly. 
Not going to happen. To which Jesus responds to the man's heart with a parable and I think a message for the church for us. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great, great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. The idea when you gave a big banquet is you didn't give the exact date and time because you really didn't know when everything would be ready. And so you just told everybody, hey, around this time, be ready. And then I'll send a word out, hey, it's time, show up. Now, the certain man was God. The many guests, commentators, believe were the Jews. And they all began to make excuses why they couldn't come to the banquet, right? They bought a field, got to go inspect it. Bought a bunch of oxen, got to go inspect them. <laughs> got married, got to go inspect my marriage. I, I, I don't know, but that's what it says. He's going to go inspect his marriage. Um, all healthy concern, but it wasn't the most important concern. The, co the servant comes back and reports this to the master, and then the owner of the house becomes very, very angry. And in verse 21, he orders his servant, go quickly out into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. You're getting a theme here. Who is Jesus inviting into his kingdom? Who is he making a very, very pointed, personal invitation to? Because these people don't believe that they've ever been invited if you're one of the poor, crippled, lame, you've never been invited. And if you got invited, it was a mistake, right? You grabbed your neighbor's mail because it wasn't to you. You were not invited. Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Again, you're noticing the trend, answering the question, who gets in and who gets healed, right? Who gets a place at the table? He continues with the parable, verse 22, sir... <clears throat> The servant said, what, you've, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. And so in a nutshell, Israel as a nation rejects the invitation we made, right? As a whole, they just reject it. So Jesus goes out to the least of these, the unclean and the holy, but still Jews, right? These are the alleys and the, the, the streets of the town. These are still the people here in this Jewish town. But there's still room at the table, so Jesus sends his disciples out into the world of the Gentiles, outside of the town, outside of the Jewish world and culture, out into the country roads and the lanes where all manner of people travel, Jew and Jew alike. This is verse 23. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes. The healthy rejected me. Even the poor, some of them rejected me. And I'm a jealous God. And I know people are following the wrong paths. And church, I need you to go out and find these people because they do not believe that they have earned a seat at the table. Well, right there is part of the problem. They believe that they have to earn a seat at the table. That's what's on their mind, and they believe that they have not earned a seat at the table. The master told the servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And this isn't a coercive kind of compel. You know, you've heard the phrase, the, the love of God compels me to do things. It's not like he coerces me. It's just that once I have this information in my head and my heart, I can't help but do the next thing. This is, this, is what's, this is the idea in this verse, right? And what was Jesus doing that compelled so many people to give up everything and follow him up and down the countryside? And what will continue to compel folks to follow him? It's this. 
on the way to the cross, Jesus' words and actions showed that there was nobody, nobody that was unloved. Absolutely no distinction between loved and not loved. Not once does Jesus tell a sinner, not even the thief of the cross next to him, not once does he tell a sinner that he or she will be excluded from God's healing and redeeming love. Not once. I want to close with this quote from Norma Worsby. There is no place or time where God's love does not seek to go. So the question this morning is, who speaks for God? And I would suggest that the person who speaks for God is the one who goes where God's love seeks to go. That should be the church. I think this passage is saying, church, what are you doing? Are you simply opening your doors and shouting, hey, come in? Or have you gone out? Because church, you're going to have to because the people out there, they don't believe, they really believe that you are all better than them. They look at you and they say, I can't go into a church. They would never. I had a friend of mine, a school teacher, invited him until I finally moved away. <laughs> never once came. He was absolutely convinced that if he came inside a church, the walls would cave in. He just felt he was so bad that God would never, no matter how many times I told him, I told him, I told him, I told him, he just, he just wouldn't believe it. The lost and the lame, they do not believe that they have earned, that they have a right at the banqueting table. Our job is to go out and make sure that they, they do understand, and it will take convincing. It's not simply a signboard out front and an open the front doors, and hey, if you don't come and get it, yeah, too bad. That's not what Christ is saying. Go out and find them. Go out and find them because they're not going to find you. They don't want to find you. It's just too humiliating for them. Go out and tell them how much they're loved. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for these passages, for the fact that we do have a difficult task in front of us, but, but again, you've given us everything that we need to succeed. We are not short on anything. Father, but the world out there is incredibly short on faith. Father, that's, that's our call. That's our call, Father, to go out and, and to build up the faith of the community. They are worthy. They are worthy. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray.